What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Rich. And if you're new here, this podcast feed is a place for all of the elk hunting interviews that I've done over the last six or seven years. Some are Wapiti Wednesdays, some are from my original podcast. But I wanted to compile the largest collection of elk hunting knowledge and interviews ever put together, which is pretty cool. And I would love your guys' help getting it out there to the world. So if you could do me a huge favor, uh, this is a new feed. So go leave it a five-star review and maybe tell a friend about it. But thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you guys enjoy this elk hunting podcast. All right. Welcome to the podcast, man. I'm oh, stoked to do this. So I finally got Andrew to do a podcast. I feel like you've been avoiding it. I have <laughs> avoided podcasts like the plague. Yeah? Yeah. So when we started, so we started this conversation and you know we're talking about podcasts in general, hunting, um, the speed at which people are learning and things like that. And I was like, this is too good. You got to say this on a podcast. So I feel like you wouldn't <laughs> normally think to say that. But it's entrapment. Is it not entrapment? No, no, no. No, no, no. no but it, I guess it is. Um, we kind of got started off with, you know, like the people who hunted before the podcast exist, they, they had to learn by really trial and error. Right. And mostly failure. Right. And Lots I was of one failure. of those people. So when I look at like how rapidly the hunting industry is booming, like with the new engagement, which is great. I love seeing it. And then it's a catch yeah, 22. Yeah. And how much information is out there better. all of a sudden it's like, holy shit. If I had these tools when I was, when I was at that stage. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it makes the big, I think there is to some degree, it does make a difference. It has to, yeah. but at the same time, like there was one thing I always learned in entrepreneurship. It's like, there really are no secrets. I could tell you exactly how to do it. But it takes effort and still takes failing to really learn. So at the end of the day, I could tell you everything to do. And I've this has been proven through the podcast, like doing it for five years. I've watched so many people. It's like I everything you need to know is out there. You just have you have to put the the minute pieces together, so to speak. Yeah. Um but people get and this is true for entrepreneurship and it's true for hunting, it's true for everything. It's like you get in uh paralysis by analysis mm -hmm. you want to know everything there is to know totally. but like you have to do to put all these pieces together you're just getting building blocks and that's why i always say like you need at bats and i tell people all the time like prioritize at bats don't prioritize going deep in the wilderness yet yeah. and all these things because like you and i struggled screwed up did all these things and now so we can, many times right right right, right. <laughs> and then like you had at bats to figure out I don't know, the minutia that's between all these building blocks. Yeah. And it, yeah, I guess I have, I have a great example. One of the people that I grew up hunting with, um, David, one of my best hunting partners, we just, we sync really well, right? The only issue we have is when we have a bull and a herd that we're hunting and yeah. <laughs> it's kind of that pivotal moment of it's like, you know, okay, now's the time. Make your move. What are you going to do? Yeah. He'll reflect to an article that he read in a Bugle magazine from 1997 <laughs> and then cross-reference that with a book that he read yeah. from the Eastman's and try to have a conversation where I'm like, every second you waste right now means that you're not going to harvest that elk. Yeah. And so while he's probably the most conservative hunter that I've ever hunted with, he's also one of the most successful. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's kind of odd. I, you know, I probably got in trouble with him quite a bit where I would get... Uh, you know, a little perturbed at his 
uh, lack of call to action. Like it yeah. just was hard to engage and just run instinctively. It was always a calibrated cross reference. Right. And I I jumped in front of him a lot, <laughs> and I'm sure I pissed him off a lot because well, I had to go instinctively pursue the elk yeah. the way that I felt was appropriate. You know, playing the wind at an appropriate time. Uh, when you have the opportunity and really seizing that moment instead of just it's going with your gut intuition of like I have to move now or yep. like now is the time to be patient. That's the I feel like the ultimate question for me is like, and you had said something before the podcast like I don't really listen to podcasts because I don't want that influence. Like, can you elaborate on that and then I'll circle back to what I was about to say because it's like it's right on cue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's like you you we talked about people who <clears throat> would want to spend more time in the woods learning the animals yeah. compared to buying the next piece of equipment or the next mm-hmm. piece of gear that got them to the point where they thought that the, the product was going to make them successful. Right. Really what you need is time in the woods. Right. And when you spent that time in the woods and once you've developed that instinctual response of, you know, I've tried this five times and it didn't work. I evolved each time. And then on the sixth time it worked. Right. I'm onto something here. So through that feedback loop, you create your own kind of dynamic way of hunting right. and analysis, like analysis of what's happening, what yeah. I'm going to do, and why I'm going to do it. And uh, the hard part about that is when you get really damn good <laughs> and you start killing every big bull and every big buck that you that you pursue, every stock that you go on, you're killing an animal. You go, okay, is it really valuable to listen to someone who's trying to give an opinion to be relevant? And maybe maybe it's qualified. Maybe they they are really like the most badass hunter that's ever existed. Yeah. And they're giving you the secrets to their like, you know, hard earned success. Chances are that's not going to happen. Right. Right. Chances are it's someone that's trying to get room or shoulder room in the industry and wants to make a name for themselves. And they're going to give you some information that they've learned. And then you'll find out that they haven't killed an elk. And you go, <laughs> what the hell did I even listen to these guys for? Right. So you don't, for me, I avoid podcasts because I don't want the outside influence to change the feedback loop that I have proven for mm-hmm. myself. And it's really easy because, you know, um, I even, I hunted with one person that was convinced that they saw Corey Jacobson bugle at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I think it was Donnie Drake or someone killed a great big, like 340 inch yeah. Wyoming bull. And they were convinced that it could happen. So they were yeah. going to prove that it could happen again. And even though in that specific video clip, they were like, this never happens. Yeah, this is yeah. the stupidest thing we've ever done. I can't believe it worked. All of a sudden, they're trying it. Yeah. Instead of just playing the tune of the animal. So it's, it's on that on that same note, in a similar vein, is like I went from the hunting dark timber, Oregon, like, and then I was like, okay, I want to learn how to hunt Montana. I want to learn how to hunt big bulls. So I, it's like I'm dropping everything I know and I want to learn. I want to, for me, the podcast has always been like I want all the tools in the tool chest. But there's, there's a crux to that because once you have all the tools, you end up second guessing yourself yep. or being like, should I do this or should I do this? And then paralysis by right. analysis. Right. right. Similarly, it's like, you know, I get, and it's like, I'll go back and forth. I'll be too aggressive. And then I'm like, all right, I need to tone it down. I won't be aggressive enough. And I, I think those are fi- things you fine tune. And these are first world problems. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, people give me a lot of shit for passing on a lot of bulls, but I want to make myself the best I can be. Yeah. And that means going back to more experience, more time around elk. Yeah. And how I get that is like, 
passing giants on day two because I know like at the end of the day in 10 years from now that's going to make you the best hunter yeah. it's like and really I, I joke that like if I kill one I have to go home I go back, go back to work yeah. which there's some truth to that <laughs> but like at the end of the day like I just love finding elk and so like to me it's always like how do you become the best elk hunter like how do you I want to be to where it's like an 85% success rate, 90% success rate on every bull you find if you wanted to. Like, that's the choice, right? And that gets tough. Like, as you know, like, you're like, sometimes I don't want to feel like I got lucky. I want to find the 400 or the 380 and be like, I know I'm going to kill that bull. I think that's what attracts me so much to mule deer hunting is that you research and you watch and you watch and you watch. Mm. And there's one deer that you're after and you kill that one deer on the one stock that you put on him. Yeah. And it's like, I did it, right? That was a calculated... Everything I did was scientific, and I succeeded. With elk, it's tricky because there's so much luck that plays into it. There's a swirl right. when there's a cow that walks the wrong way yeah. and bumps into like I. The amount of times that I've had huge bulls in front of me and a cow just decide to lumber my way or <laughs> right, like yeah. a foot or two past me downwind yeah. and blow the whole thing, after you know walking in on the herd and, and being there for two and a half hours, uh, I you know I I can't keep track of how many times that's happened. So. There's just a lot of luck involved in it. There's a lot of luck, but it's also, you know, you, going back to what you were mentioning, don't shoot the first opportunity that shows up. And you may regret it. It may be the biggest bull that you've ever seen you're ever going to see. Or the biggest bull for that season. Mm-hmm. The best opportunity for that season. Right. But if you don't pass it up, if you don't, like, identify how to deal with the nerves, draw your bow back, hold the pin on, let the bull walk by, let down, or... You know, when you're trad bow now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just, haven't got to the yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Just, just let them walk and go, yep, that was it, you know, 14 yards, and there'll be another opportunity, but let's see how close I can get to them. Yeah. From 14 yards, can I get to eight in my socks? Yeah. Holy cow, I can. <laughs> and the confidence you get from that, you know, it's a lot of it's about confidence and feedback loop. So being able to apply those little pieces of information to when you can move and when you can't learning when there's you know when you're there's so much subtlety that goes in that i always call it the red zone but like there's so much subtlety that you never get a practice you can go out locate all the bulls in the world yeah. call them all in and there's so much subtlety subtlety that it happens between like the actual this bull is in range which that takes a lot in bow range mm-hmm. even for a compound bow and then actually getting the shot. There's so many things that can go sideways, not including misses, but like there's so much when you get in that red zone that has to go perfect. That yeah. it's like you have to, you have to, that's why I say at bats, you have to like be in that scenario enough to be like, okay, I've been here before. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, the challenge is knowing that you're in that moment and that you can stay there. Yeah. Everyone thinks that those moments are so fleeting. And that's why we get rushed to make a, quick shot or an imperfect shot or you know maybe take one step when we shouldn't have what i've found is that you stop and just like you know <laughs> i'm not a hippie and don't take this <laughs> wrong way, right if anyone's a hippie out there uh you know good for you but uh energy in this world if you can calm your heart rate down and navy seals do the same thing right they have breathing exercises to bring the heart rate down to be able to think cognitively and you know remove the emotion from this situation. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, and that happens by having multiple experiences or at-bats mm-hmm. in front of these animals, and you can find a way to be relatively like cognitively in control of what you're thinking and what you're doing, right. then you can apply tact. 
But before that, you're in this you know, sense of urgency, this reactionary phase where you're just like, oh my God, here's my chance. I'm right. Draw back. Well, that angle's not right, but he's going to turn the wrong way. Oh my God, I got to take the shot. Right. Instead Rush. of saying like, okay, he turned, he walked away. Mm-hmm. I spent 45 more minutes in the herd and all of a sudden, oh, there he is, perfectly broadside, 40 yards. I can range him right. and he's dead. Yeah. Instead of this like fleeting chance of it's like, I finally got within the red zone and I have to make it happen. Yeah. Just stop, cool off, enjoy that experience and stand upright. Right. Right. The people who hunch over are like, you know, that's an, that's an immediate reaction to like, I'm like, I'm in this predatory mode. I'm in this response mode. If something happens. I'm just going to do it yeah. instead of think and slow yourself down. So. Do you think there's a balance between successful hunters and like being aggressive and being patient and not even patient, like just waiting, you know, waiting for the opportunity versus sometimes there's times where you have to be like, okay, I got to go. You were just talking about, you know, your friend that's like very calculated mm-hmm. and there's like this, this dance that's between being aggressive and knowing when you have to force something to, to happen mm-hmm. and being careless. Totally. And South Cox, you know, said it best. Um, he mentioned, he's like, if I only knew, when I was 20 years younger, that I could sprint when I was trying to be quiet and stalking. And other times that I could like slow down to a snail's pace when I was walking too quickly, yeah. the amount of animals that I would have harvested right. would be completely different, right? So through the hunting evolution in your own shoes, you mm-hmm. learn when you can sprint and when you need to stand still. And the toughest part is being there, for all the, yeah, <laughs> being there for all the failures. And that's right. one thing a podcast will never teach you. Right. And, you know, I think it's fun when you look at, um, when you look at elk, there are some podcasts that I listen to, but they're not hunting industry. Um, for instance, like you look at like animal husbandry and, and, um, like ecological podcasts that yeah. addressed environment or addressed ranching. And you start identifying little things that apply, right? So I'm here to actually add things to the industry, add things to my knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Not just repeat what someone said already. Okay. So... One thing that stuck, you know, recently stuck out to me is we're looking at um, actually back when uh, back when I lived with Ben Gatormson, we were evaluating bulls' snout lengths and snout widths because we had I don't know there was like there was one year there was like four dead elk that we you know killed four elk and we're sitting there with racks in the in the garage yeah. and we're like. How are all these that much different? Right. That one's 340. This one's 330. That one's 280. Why is the one that's 280 have a bigger snout than the one that's 340? And like, what does that actually mean? The aging of the teeth and all the fun stuff. And so you start applying information from different industries. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you look at the, the dairy industry and they evaluate cows on how they can eat what they, what they yield for milk and yeah. cheese, right? Yeah. So what they can yield for milk is kind of determined on the size of their mouth, the width of their mouth compared to the width of their hips. Really? So when you look at a bull and he's 370 inches and you look at another bull that has a bigger body, but he's 320 inches. Right. Why is that? Yeah. One is able to eat more food to digest more, right? Clip off more vegetation faster. Right. Than the other one is. Interesting. Are these, are these little like tidbits yeah, yeah. that create a 370 bull instead of a 320 bull? Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the smaller bull that had the longer snout was significantly So what's your theory on, on antler size? Like, is it, 
when you get past a certain point, let's say above the, let's say top 10% of an, of a group of animals, like that could be changing Wyoming to Oregon, obviously, but there's always like this, this 10% that's above, right? Yeah. Is that based on testosterone? Is I mean, because a lot of times those aren't the biggest bodied animals. Right. So in that, by that theory, they're not ingesting the most amount of food. They have better nutrition or is it just genetics? But they may have smaller bones and a bigger mouth. Hmm. Right? So a smaller frame and a bigger mouth. Yeah. It's all this like proportionate ratio. And this is looking at the cattle industry. And this yeah. is how they evaluate what they're going to breed and what they're not going to breed. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So how do they get a cow that yields 100 pounds more than the other? Yeah. And it comes down to these two factors. So there's a lot of outline information that no one's going to talk about in the hunting industry. Yeah. Where you can cross-reference things through you know, biology and animal husbandry that How is, I mean, I guess another question, another way to put it is like, what things have you pulled from animal husbandry that have changed your perspective on, say, the hunting industry? One for me and one that I've learned just from growing up around horses is uh, is that horses are all different. They all have personalities, right? Yeah. And I, I apply that to the elk woods because I understand like there's so many people that are like, oh, well, elk do this or elk do that. I'm like... You couldn't in a million years tell me that all horses do this or all horses do that. And so to me, it's like there's got to be a lot of crossover there. So Mm -hmm. it's like I go into situations almost trying to figure out a bull's personality. This more so in the calling sphere than I would spot and stock, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely applicable in spot and stock um, where you're like trying to figure out the personality first. Who is this elk? And like that's like has been wildly beneficial for me because you're like – as I kind of process this, but so the hard many part people. is that you're personifying it, right? right? You're taking this wild animal and saying, "What human characteristics can I pattern hmm. out of him?" Right? And, and behavioral characteristics. And we, yeah, we can relate to that though. Right? Okay. So yeah. you identify he does X, Y, and Z. It's probably because he's tired, or probably because he's hungry, right. Right. or he's you know a little shy from the other elk, and that's why he's hanging out over mm. here. Yeah. Do do elk? Is that overthinking it? Do elk actually have these feelings? Yeah, there's a lot Are of they feelings or characteristics? Right. So a lot of people would actually say that they would have feelings like this. They have like actual human, you know. I don't know if they have feelings. I don't know. I could be wrong on that one. Well, we feel with our hands. They feel, do they feel with their hoofs? Mm, no. Nah, so. uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's characteristics you can pull. And I think just having that in the back of your head for me has been beneficial because it's like, okay, is this a super aggressive elk or is it a very docile elk? Because yeah. he like not care. Is he with you know, is he by himself or like, yeah. is he a loner? Right. Like, is this the type of bull that's just going to peel off because mm-hmm. he's bigger than everything else? He's like, he's just going to peel off on his own any yeah. minute. You know, um, those kind of characteristics to me are like food for thought at a minimum of being like, okay, what are we dealing with? Yeah. But again, that bull is every dynamic so much different. There's a place that I hunted. I'm from Idaho. So where I grew up hunting was like the rainforest. It was outside of Cascade, Idaho, yeah. the West, <laughs> West Mountain. I mean, right. the brush was 20 feet tall. And the animals would step on one side of the game trail yeah. for the thermal winds, and you'd walk by and they'd spook. Yeah. And if it was a different wind, like that, that reaction, that hunting scenario sucked. To <laughs> right? So it's just like, <clears throat> you're always going to lose. And then you go to like southeastern Idaho, where you can see the animals and there was, you know, there's one year, it was a 14-day hunt, and I passed up 22 bulls under 40 yards. Jeez. And I was set on one of the two big bulls I've been hunting the last two years. And the funny part was, you could never get close to these bulls because they were so much bigger than the other bulls 
that even though there was a bunch of ruckus and a bunch of bugling, they were walking in the front of the herd. Hmm. And how do you kill a bull that's walking into the wind in the front of the herd? Right. Right? So they Did were you kind ever of... solve that problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, how you do it is you shoot the smaller bull and then you challenge bugle to like make elk sounds. Yeah. <laughs> and that bull and you cow call afterwards. And that bull is standing there as your decoy. Yeah. And the herd bull comes down and looks at him and goes, you didn't just challenge, you didn't just challenge people. Me, did you? Yeah. And he runs up to 40 yards and stands there broadside while the other one dies. Yeah. That's, that's how you, that's I how you fix that I technically did that one year in Idaho. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have a second tag. This is before I knew, I, this is so dumb. I didn't know you could have a second tag in Idaho. And I hunted there multiple years. And I was chasing this bull for a number of days. And same, he was always like into the wind, could never get in front of him. Finally, day 21 or whatever it was, on my second or third trip back there, this raghorn like standing there in my way. I can't do anything because these two raghorns are like fighting and I can't go anywhere. So I end up shooting one of the raghorns. Long story short, he tips over and he's like making all this noise. Big Bull comes, as I'm walking up to the bull, Big Bull comes back and bugles right over top of him. I'm like, of course. <laughs> like, so you're right, that does work. <laughs> yeah, if you want to learn about elk behavior, Shoot right. one and hang out, right? Have a huge bull nearby that you can't kill yeah. and kill a small one. And then you'll be like, oh, well, this was easy. He walked up to 20 yards broadside. I, I mean, the yeah. amount of time that that's happened is insane. Um, you said you, when you're talking about passing bulls, to what degree do you think passing elk made you a better hunter? Uh, comfort. Getting familiar with the scenario of elk being within range. And knowing that you don't have to shoot. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the, the biggest control factor is that, you know, our, our entire preparation for the season is to get to this pivotal point where you're at full draw. Your fingers, like, pressing, increasing tension on the trigger. You're holding mm -hmm. your pin. You're executing with back tension. Shot goes off. Arrow flies true. Boom. Yeah. Success, right? And to push yourself so hard to get into that red zone yeah. and have a bull that's you know, pretty good walk in front of you and be able to go, well, no, 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 I'm going to hold back. Yeah. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to get comfortable with my pin on the vitals because I can do this all day. Yeah. Right. And I think that was the big trick was realizing that I used to acknowledge that the opportunity was a very short period of time. And I had five seconds basically from when that elk walked in front of me, I'd like, Five seconds. seconds and the whole herd's going to blow. And what it turned out to be is I can stand here for two hours. Yeah. And I'll have five more animals walk by within 10 yards. Yeah. Or, you know, move with the herd slightly. But um, I think it just came down to being comfortable within range of elk and not feeling like I had to put the pressure on myself to get the shot off. To force the shot. Yeah. Just it, yeah. watching them, observing so them. So many times you try to force that shot, you're like... It's not quite there, but if I if I move around this tree, I'll get a shot, and then that blows everything, right? Yeah. And you're like, you could have just had the the shot if you would have waited, you know, maybe a better shot. Yeah. Um, and that's you know one of the things that I found through spot and stock for sure is like when you're calling, that's usually the case. Like a bull comes in, and you do have five seconds because like especially solo calling, you're like. You that's, only have that's everything you see. Yeah. Right? A bull comes in that's looking for right. a challenger. He doesn't find and it. And he doesn't he, find he's out. He's, yeah. yeah. And now he's on edge, you know. And so the, this is like one of the things like in the last couple of years that I've spent a lot more time spot and stocking and putting the calls away. I, I still would say like I'll try to know when to use them, when not to. Mm -hmm. um, and let curiosity to kill the cat. Because when you use curiosity, you usually get a second chance. But mm -hmm. if you use aggression, you don't. Um, 
long story short is like as I've become more spot and stock and just like trying to get close to, and follow the herd, dog the herd, mm-hmm. like you realize that like, okay, you have a lot more opportunities within that. If you're just right silent, right? Yeah. So the funny part, and this is going to sound like it's completely ass backwards. I call a lot. Really? Like a ton. And I don't kill elk because I call like at all. Right. So I'm creating something, a disturbance basically to cover something. And I don't do it within a range where I can't move. Right. You have to so it. without exactly. So it sounds, it sounds like I'm it's, pre- you um, lost me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I call a lot to create okay. scenarios where there's like out of range, a bull's not going to move that far Yeah. for the most part to come uh, check it out. Okay. 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 But there's disruption, right? There's potential for something, a crack of a twig to be something that's not in their herd. Yep. And then I don't actually right. call when I'm into the herd. Right. Right. So I think, and because you have to locate them, you have to take the temperature of the bull. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out if there's other other disturbances in the herd, if there's yeah. a satellite that's bugging this guy. Yeah. Um, if he's got more cows than he can handle. Again, like the observations that we talked about, just spend time watching. Right. And to be able to watch elk in September during a rutting phase, whether they're peak rut behavior or, you know, a two-day lull behavior, learning why they're doing what they're doing, or at least coming up with some, you know, some ideas of right. why they might be doing it, and then applying that to the experience. So I think that's why um, I think a lot of people get value out of, you know, tagging along with someone who's hunting or calling for them, because right. there's no pressure to get the shot off. Right. Right? Exactly. And all of a sudden, they can sit there and analyze and try something new mm-hmm. and get feedback. That's interesting that you were talking about creating the chaos. It's like setting the stage for, you know, future scenarios, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, I, I didn't come up with this. My buddy James Nash was explaining it to me, but I, I really like this analogy. It's like you go into, you know, say you got a field, small field with a bunch of bulls, cow bulls, mm-hmm. uh, like moo cow bulls. You got a bunch of bulls in there and they all kind of have their area and they're all fine with each other until you start pushing things around. Mm-hmm. As you like ride through on a horse, you're like, okay, you start moving stuff and all of a sudden they start picking on each other and, and like trying to establish dominance. And I do think the elk to a lot of degree have that same thing. Like you know, talk early season, they all have their routine, their pattern. Yeah. Even if there's a big bull, it's a herd bull and he's herded up. Like if he's doesn't have any competitors that are close to him like it's a pretty established okay he's boss there may be satellites but they're not really pressuring him and you don't get into this you know so if anything is out of that routine that's when you're they're like okay we're out something changed like it's a very noticeable difference you talk peak rut a lot of the a lot of the times they're doing it to themselves right they're mm-hmm. mixing up the herd so chaos is ensued so like you're pre-programming that chaos to so that when you're in there, like if something goes sideways or even yeah. something feels off, it doesn't really feel off because like, okay, there was some chaos over there. Yeah. That chaos must have came over here. That's, man, that's really smart. Yeah. I don't know what I wouldn't say it's smart. <laughs> <laughs> He's setting it up. No, yeah. it's interesting though. But like, you know, you set the stage for like scenarios. You know, mm-hmm. I just like try to, um, I don't know if this was on the podcast or not. We were talking about how like you got to like, you got to think like an elk. You want to get close to big bulls, you have to think like an elk. Yeah. And you have to lay this scenario out because they see this day in and day out. And if you, if it's not, if the scenario is not unfolding, like they know it should, like yeah. something's off. Totally. You know, it's like you could walk into the grocery store or the bank. And if someone 
like something fell off within the bank, like someone was robbing the bank, you would know before it happened. You're like, totally. something feels off, yeah. right? Like there's something in my routine that feels very strange. And like, I think we notice those things, but then it's like, when you put that in the elk woods, I think it's amplified. Like oh, totally. big bulls are like, they're okay, tuned in. Right. Yeah, yeah. They know exactly what's going on. And more, maybe more importantly, her, our lead cows are way tuned in. Like they know exactly what's going on by the end of season. They're like, something doesn't feel right. I'm out. Yep. You know, they've been messed with. Yeah. That rock is flipped on its side. That wasn't that way. <laughs> that wasn't that way. Yeah. Like, I mean, these, these lead cows, they've got it pegged. Um, but you know, it does come down to understanding, I guess, uh, something came to my, my mind that was just like, there's a lot of people who come in thinking that like, you know, this bugling concept is going to strike up a bull and they'll respond. Mm-hmm. One of the best, and then here's, here's a trick. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give you guys one of my here's inside the gold. Andrew's got the right? gold. <laughs> Remember when I was referencing earlier of how, how someone who doesn't know how to elk hunt is going to give you advice. Well, yeah. here it is. <laughs> right. So when you move into an area and you know, there's elk there, but they're timid, right? Maybe it's their afternoon bed. And you want to be kind of on them for when the wind changes, right? You want to be within the area, so you're striking distance, but you have to behave like an elk. So what do you do? You come in, most people come in and do a locator bugle and say, mm-hmm. where's the elk? Yeah. All the elk that are in the herd already know where the elk are. Right. They can use their noses. They can walk downwind. Yeah. They'll wander into the bedding area and they got it. If you walk up and you're like timid and you know you're within maybe 400 yards, and you give like the lightest single tongue, quiet, trying to be quiet, mm-hmm. intentionally being quiet. Right. And you wait within eight to 12 minutes. If a bull's within hearing distance, he'll respond the same way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if you locate bugle, he's nothing. Like, yeah. Right? He's like, that's the wrong sound for the wrong time of day. He's obviously not an elk. Or he if he is, I don't want to mess with them. Right yeah. now we're bedded down, we're lazy, yeah, we're taking a nap. Yeah, and if, he, if he's locating to find my cows, I'm definitely not gonna answer. Totally. Yeah. And even, you know, the cow's talking or the bull's talking to his cows. He's not talking to the other bulls, mm-hmm. right? He's right. saying cows stay here. Mm-hmm. I'm the shit. Yeah. Okay. That guy's right. just an imposter. Um, and I think that's a lot of times why they respond. And the, one of the funniest things is uh, going back on one of the experiences I've had, uh, I don't know, maybe it was eight years ago, I took two clients out to basically work clients in the hunting industry, a retailer down in Jackson, and they had Idaho tags. And we went out, and this guy's name's Rob, and he goes out there, and he's like, all right, if I bugle out from this point, I always get a response. And what did he do? Yeah, it was later in the morning, it was like 10.30, and he goes, and I go, great. (laughs) <laughs> great that's uh well you know i'm just here to call for you guys and like yeah. help you get get a bowl right and he turns to me and he goes how was that and i said well rob if it was a blowjob i would ask you to stop <laughs> <laughs> he goes it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad <sighs> sorry for any female listeners out there <laughs> um and i'm like no it it was because you're saying the wrong damn thing at the, at wrong, the wrong time hand. yeah so if, if i want to say the right thing I'm going to say, I'm not a threat. Mm. I'm just here. I've got cows. I got to say to the cows, like, I'm here. Don't get out of your beds. Yeah. And so he goes, yeah, right. And I go, okay, well, let's wait five minutes for them to forget about what you just did. <laughs> and I just let that single tone bedded bugle out and four bulls responded. 
Wow. Right? So yeah. it's, and again, you don't get to know this by watching Corey Jacobson go out there and look at, look at. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what you do get to learn is by buying less gear <laughs> and spending more time in the woods, right? Don't work the extra hours to buy more gear. Take the extra time off to sit in the woods and watch the animals yeah. and listen to them. One of my, I don't know if it's a quote I became famous for or people just attribute it. But I always say, and I've always said, buy tags, not gear. Yeah. It's not that gear is not important. You'll acquire that over time. What I'm trying to say is buy experiences, not the gear. Like you need more tags and yeah. you more at bats. Spend it on gas money. Totally. You know? um, and if you're going to buy gear, yeah, like buying a Kafaru pack is a great idea. It lasts forever. It's going to be one of the best platforms to carry, yada, yada, yeah. yada. But does a first-year hunter... Right. That decided to go archery right out of the box. Need an eight hundred dollar backpack? No, no. You need to struggle to know what the value of that backpack is. <laughs> right. right, right. Exactly. This is true. So, and it's going to take you five years before you know you realize. And I, I said this a lot when I was at Mystery Ranch as the hunting line manager there. But um, it was how many people are actually packing out at no. least one animal per year? Yeah. Very few. We talk about how ten percent of the hunters are doing ninety percent of the killing. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Um, Except yeah. for these damn podcasts. It's probably changing 20% now. But, um, I yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, dude, that is such a catch-22 and a deep topic. But back to your, like, dude, the lazy bugle, the the bedded bugle is so clutch. And, like, it takes longer than most people would think. I've sat there for 30 minutes before I get a response. You know, late afternoon, it's like, okay, I know they're not up yet, but I'm going to start this this circus mm-hmm. a little early yeah. and I'll just sit there, you know, and I'm not going to bugle every two minutes or five minutes, every 10 minutes even. It's like, I'll throw out that bedded bugle and then 10 minutes later, I throw out a half, half-assed chuckle yeah. and then 10 more minutes. And, you know, and like uh, by 30 minutes, like I might get a, Ooh, like totally. that's it. Exactly. You know, that's all you got. And the relevance and I, of time on. is a metric that we created. Right. That's not natural. Right. Right. So right. you ever seen a deer stare at a leaf for like two hours? <laughs> they have and no right, sense of time. With you for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been there. Frozen on one foot. Yeah. Like he's not moving. And I think that's the other thing that's a really awesome trick is that, you know, dial in your posture. There's a um, there's a couple of great books out there about like the catwalk or um, you know, I think it's Asbel that has a book out that's um, about how to walk like the stalking walk. And, you know, if you're hunched over, you're in a predator mode, it's easily identifiable. The other thing is you can't stand there without moving for a long period of time. Does a deer stand there with a bent knee mm. for a long period of time? No, they lock it out and yeah. they stand and they look, right? So... For you to be able to walk in on something, slowly stalking it on a herd or stalking it on a mule deer, you can't be hunched over. You can't be in a compromised I'm totally guilty position. of this, by the way. I'm totally. pretty sure I'm like, you try to get lower. Yeah, well, you know, every Hollywood movie is like, oh, I'm stalking. I've got to, you know, I've like got to hunch Creep over down, and I've got to bear crawl and I've got to do this, yeah. that. No, like think about standing upright. All the, if you're hunting timber specifically, yeah. the trees are vertical. Oh, every orientation of uh-huh. every stem is going, for the most part, pretty okay. vertical. Um, yeah. You can blend in pretty well, and movement gives you away. Yeah. So if you if you're quivering a little bit down on the ground, you're yeah. going to be noticed more rapidly than if you're not quivering. So you just when you stop, you're straight up and down. And that's what helps me get my mental composure and my heart rate down. 
is as soon as I start squeezing the riser of the bow, as soon as I start cramping my forearm yeah. where I'm putting tension on the string, I know that I'm like I'm emotionally engaged in this hmm. and I need to just take a step back. Yeah. Right? Because Disengage. nothing yeah, nothing good happens when you're emotional with an elk in front of you. Right. right? Do you think that there's anything um like what's the uh there's like the animals have a sixth sense that something's 100%. danger, right? Yeah. And so do you ever go through like I don't know the best explanation I have right now is like think happy thoughts, but like not thinking like oh I'm gonna kill this mf or you know like yeah not the aggressive oh, yeah, thoughts. I'm gonna stick him. yeah like no, that, you know that like never you're, succeeds yeah it never works yeah. right <laughs> they're like you could, they kind of know but like when you're locked eyes when you're locked eyes with a big buck or a big bull like what's going through your head do you try to think happy thoughts <laughs> <laughs> I play Chuck Adams mentality what's that it's gonna fail. And Randy Elmore did the same thing. Mm. Everything is going to fail. What is wrong with the situation? Like, there's something wrong here, and I will find it. What am I doing wrong? Something's going to go wrong. Draw the bow back. Oh, that's great Pins advice. on there. Something's going to go wrong. Like, you're going to flinch. You're going to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we have this, like, hilarious optimism that overcomes you when you have an animal in front of you. Right. I can get it. Like, oh, yeah, he's out yeah, 12 yards outside of my effective range at 82 <laughs> yards. But I'm going to launch an arrow at him because, you know, he's the biggest bull I've ever seen. He's the biggest bull you've ever seen. You should be taking a closer shot so you can make sure that you kill him. Yeah. Right? Not saying that taking a bad shot is ever valid. But, but it's just it's mind-blowing to me that... Um, well, I think people talk a big talk, but being in this world long enough, you know that like when it's five to 10 yards outside of people's wheelhouse, they will take the shot like 80% of the time. You know, they're good at like, uh, he's quartered away super hard, but I thought I could squeeze it in there. Like I, it's, it's human nature, man. Like you'd be like, Oh, this is as close as I'm going to get. Like I got to take the shot or it's going to leave my life. Just let it go. I think it's good to have that mentality for sure. Yeah. Like to be like, I like that. Like it's gonna fail, or like I think I I walk through like I'm not gonna shoot this bull. Like mm -hmm. I'll even if it's like when he's standing in thing. front of you, yeah. Like you're almost trying to telepathically speak to him. Yeah, if you right. know what I'm talking about. Right, exactly. Everyone's done it. Yeah, where you're like, I'm gonna kill him, <laughs> and he's like, mm, No, I'm gonna walk away from you now. <laughs> Whereas you're like, Okay. Nothing happening here. Pretty elk. Like, that's a, You're a pretty elk. That's, that's a cool flower. That's a nice tree limb. <laughs> See, you do think happy thoughts. <laughs> well, and like, I just like, I think about like being present in the experience. No. Not, how is he going to look on my wall? Because that's what's led me to failure every time, right? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, grip and grin. He's broadside and he's 25 yards. And I'm thinking about the grip and grin and the shot goes flawed. Right. Right. So it is being present and... And you know, you get it with archery specifically, and I'm hammering a lot of archery specific hunting here, but you have a shot process you go through. And if you miss a step in that shot process, there's a likelihood that your shot's going to go wrong. So everything, you know, getting to 98%, getting the bow drawn, getting your pin on, undetected, executing perfect shot. I've seen people execute a perfect shot and a bull flinch at the wrong moment. And it went from like the most perfect shot to wow, that's maybe one lung and liver, mm -hmm. and out of their control. Yeah. So realistically, is he going to be on your wall? He's mm -hmm. not on your wall until he's on your freaking wall. Yeah. So be present, yeah. and that's you know that comes down to even like tracking blood when you lose blood, tracking a track, 
like every Slowing single yeah. piece of a fragment of a second that you can be present in the woods is something you'll be able to take home with you and review later. But if you're thinking about something that's not present there in the mm-hmm. moment, if you're telling you a story on how it happened before it happened, oh my god! <laughs> and so what's so funny is that if you've ever had an elk in front of you, you've had this happen. Like it totally. It, it's this is why we're talking about um, you know podcasts being able to you know increase the rapid succession of acquiring information for a new hunter. Right. Right. Like you're hearing this now and. You're going to go out there and you'll instantly identify it. The first time it happens to you, go, oh, right. Don't think about that. Think about right, this. Right. Instead of me, who experienced that like 10 times. Yeah, for years. For years, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then all of a sudden you went, oh, the one time that I got comfortable and I pulled myself back from thinking about that because I was so angry at myself. Yeah. Right? Like I missed three shots on three different bowls and I'm so pissed. <laughs> That I can't even think a happy thought about that bowl being on. Do you ever like, think about like? Do you ever think about some of your misses? Like I'll re- I replay misses or screw ups so many times in my head. I can think back to so many of them over the uh-huh. years. I'm like, man, if I would have this time or that time, like how many? Like I don't really care about the number of bowls, but it's like I wish I wouldn't have screwed up that one or God, yeah. that was a dumb mistake. Like totally. And you'll, I mean, that's good. I feel like that it helps you grow. Yeah. One thing I was gonna add, I've never really asked this, but what is what would mastery look like to you? Mastery? Mastery. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think um, going down to the, ro- the most rudimentary way of harvesting an animal and, you know, the largest animal with the most rudimentary equipment is mastery. Um, going back to what people were doing thousands of years before yeah our generation is here um that's mastery those people had major skills we don't have shit for skills really <laughs> right like well, they also spent literally it was a full-time job for them yeah which is which is a nice i guess it's probably not to them wasn't nice you know mm-hmm. i'm sure they were like well you get to sleep in a real bed <laughs> yep, <totally. laughs> i know where your meal's coming from yeah um so i guess there's two things with it there's mastery of one's own skill yeah. Right. And then there's what you do after you feel like you've reached your goals and your, I guess, level of mastery. What do you do for the other people? Yeah. Right. So and it's a bunch of different phases of hunting evolution and one's right. journey. But um, well, you I find feel like... more value in mentoring. Like right, right now, I legitimately yeah. feel a lot of times, unless it's, you know, a cranker bull or a huge buck. I feel like getting someone else an animal is more like it's a better feeling. It's more success than me walking out there and killing another animal. Right. Do you feel like, um, how do I frame this? Do you feel like, I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of the great hunters I've seen, like they, they, the evolution becomes like, I want to kill the biggest bull I can find and finding the biggest bull. But there's, there's definitely a head wall there because like so much of that, ends up being like a money game or a private game or even a getting in the right tags game. Mm-hmm. Like, and so then people are like, okay, well, I'm going to kill a bow with primitive equipment, right? And so then like, if I'm going to make this harder on myself. This is human nature by going down in equipment, right? <laughs> and so like, then, then there's Andrew who like kills bigger bulls than everyone with rudimentary equipment. <laughs> 
We don't talk about those. <laughs> but like, how does the evolution and or I guess maybe the question is like, does that be like, does this whole big thing? Because people get upset about killing big animals or mm-hmm. like it's just, you know, that's not how they want to do it. So it offends them or for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, to me, it's like I just enjoy finding the small percentage of those bulls. Yeah. I mean, what's the difference of a 410 bull breeding a cow compared to a 380 bull? She doesn't Nothing. care. No. <laughs> no. no. Right. And yeah, it's more of a challenge because the 410 is more difficult to find. Right. right? There's fewer of them around. And uh, until you come down to the threshold of where you have immature bulls breeding mature cows, that's an issue. Mm. Right. Yeah. But, um, but is there really an issue of, you know, but that's been one six year old bull over another six year old bull? Right. No. Right. And Not yeah. in my mind. Right. And it was like, a 350 bull could be six years old. A 380 bull could be six years old. Hell, mm-hmm. it could be five years old. Or let's say six and seven. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot that goes into that. Um, you know, for me, it's just like I like making it harder in, in finding them. That mm-hmm. seems to be a challenge. Um, maybe I'll get to that point where I'm like, okay, let's tone down the weapon. I don't know if I'll ever get there or not. Like, and I don't think everyone does. Yeah. I, I, so um, not to take this discussion and make a rapid turn with it, but <laughs> I'm going to. Um, I think for me, for myself, if I was to calibrate this, it's taking the largest animal with the most rudimentary equipment and the most natural landscape I can exist in. So I mean, the most natural landscape. So I mean, like, like where you're afraid of shit, right? <laughs> Like when yeah. you, like, I'm a very aggressive hunter. I talked about running and then stopping and yeah. I'll, I'll cover 10 yards in an hour and a half, but then I'll cover 200 yards as fast as I can sprinting. Yeah. And I do that a lot of it in my socks. Legitimately. Really? Running around in my socks, pack dropped, you know, Forgot where pistol your bear spray. Yeah. I've done that before. <laughs> uh, I've also yelled, hey, you bear, give me my backpack back. <laughs> what? And then realized that my pack was like behind the next tree, not where I thought I left it. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's it's really unique when, when you get in a scenario where you can run through the country and you're like, you know, kind of exercising what generations before you have done. Right. Um, no, I'm not a Native American, but you have these like tendencies, these primal tendencies to want to be able to feel and touch the earth. Right. And when your feet are making contact and your hands are making contact, you just connect better with nature. So one thing that really inspires me is knowing that I can't just sprint around that tree and make that happen because I've done that before. And there's been a boar grizzly bear 12 <laughs> yards on the other side. And I went, <laughs> right so knowing that you're not like the world doesn't revolve around you you're yeah. engaging in a natural world and going back to the basics right um i think that i mean it's been shown a 12 year old can shoot a ball 800 yards with a high-powered rifle and have it be a 400 inch bull yeah that's you know that's great for some people but i think when it when it comes down to what you're trying to get out of hunting it's self-improvement Right. Right. We look at hundred percent. I mean, that's why it's so addictive because yeah. you know you can do better. And, and you there's have... no there's no cap to it really. No. No. <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about hunting is like you and I I think that's what I love about our guests, specifically the Patreons, is like these are people who are like devoted to getting better at this mm-hmm. and not just looking for shortcuts. Yeah, maybe there's some shortcuts they're looking for. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like I try to really hone in as like you have to have these experiences that are going to make you better in life. And that's like hunting is the perfect 
side order to that because it's like there's no cap to how to how hard it could be or or like how good you could get because you can never master it that's why i asked the mastery question it's like man i feel like of my friends that are like close to mastery i feel like i hate to even use that term because i know you'd be like no i'm not gonna get close yeah i mean there's people again like we look outside of the people who are on instagram and facebook and all this crap there's people who have houses filled with the biggest trophies you've ever seen if you've never heard of their name right Most that's of who i aspire to be right 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 and and yeah maybe they lived at a more advantageous time they lived they hunted with a rifle during the 80s in wyoming and have a couple 200 inch bucks big yeah. deal but being able to be that person i think um something that was really inspiring for me too was uh kurt rude who's a local bozeman guy um had me over for a beer one night i didn't really know who he was and and uh, we're just kind of getting getting to know each other. And, you know, he said, well, let's take a walk out in the garage. And walked out in the garage in the rafters. And I went, wow. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever, if, if huh? anyone knows him or have been in his garage. I went, huh? how many different states did you hunt? And he said, just Montana. Really? And I went, well, like I can see right now, I can see, and maybe I'm, ballparking this obviously but it was like 15 bulls over 340 and you know and then most people haven't really ever heard of this guy yeah. right he doesn't want to be a public figure so right. Kurt, by the way <laughs> uh, uh even like todd or hunting with a pistol right. during a rifle season the guy's a badass he's a legend but he didn't do it because he wanted to prove it to someone else he's doing it because he he enjoys it he enjoys right. the challenge of doing this for himself and uh and i aspire to do that um, and be that that type of person. I guess that's what keeps me driving. And and also going back to the natural landscape, I I think if I can kill a big elk with a primitive weapon, and see a wolf and see a grizzly bear in the same hunt, I fulfilled everything I wanted out of that. Because I, awesome. it's just like you know you're actually there with the way things should be. Yeah. Do you feel like hunting with grizzlies in grizzly country? I should say. Mm-hmm is vastly different than that do you feel like it changes your the way you hunt uh you know a lot of people in northern montana always said oh yeah you know i have to go down to southwestern montana because you're always looking over your shoulder and i don't look over my shoulder the bear's not looking to get you in my opinion uh most times where people get mauled it's it's in front of you (laughs) it's yeah it's like you're in the wrong place the wrong time talk to todd or yeah he's like she didn't do anything wrong i was just like unlucky in the wrong place wrong time respect the hell out of bears um it does change the way you hunt because you can't just like do what you want to when you want to yeah you have this lingering thought in the back of your head of what if i stumble onto a carcass and there's a bear on it already like my hands on one, my left hands on my bow, yeah. and when I get into thick timber, maybe my right hands on my bear spray. Yeah. Instead of just like running through the timber and not right. being afraid of anything, getting closer to the elk faster. Um, I, I do think one of the fun things about this is we talk about making it harder to hunt, and I think that you know, grizzly bears targeting male elk during September is kind of unique, right? It's kind of and if you ever run yeah. into a situation where you're stalking an animal and there's a bear in front of you, I've been there. Done <laughs> you really? That. That's yeah. happening to you? And, and I got so revved up that I ended up shooting the wrong bull. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a great opportunity to kill a huge bull, but I screwed up and shot like a barely poping young bull. But I think the cool part is like when there's wolves cruising through the country, 
you know, the elk aren't usually out really easy, mm-hmm. you know, to call, to walk up to. They're not on the meadows very long sometimes. Sometimes they are. But there's natural predators out there that are keeping them on their toes the whole time. Yeah. So you're one of those natural predators. And that's what makes it more difficult. And the funny part about this is everyone complains about, you know, oh, the elk numbers are down because the wolves and the bears and grizzly bear hunting, you know, hunting elk in grizzly bear country is is brutal and there's no elk anymore. I would challenge you to look at the Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett entries that have happened in the last 10 years and tell me if it's any different than the 10 years before it right. and 10 years before that. Yeah, interesting. And, and you'll actually, what I've seen. Is there more? Yeah, there's more, right? That doesn't surprise me. So these bulls, instead of being idiots running around, they're like, okay, I need to breed the cows in this time period. I'm going to be very strategic about it and work through them. Boom, 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 boom. Move them off to a safe space and then go back and recover. Yeah. Instead of being like in maybe in areas where they don't have natural predators, maybe rutting longer or... Uh, with less caution. No, absolutely. I, you were talking about like seeing, you know, the wolves and, and like this mad, like there's always these magical moments in the elk woods where you're like, mm-hmm. this is elk hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is so epic. And there's a particular time where it was blizzarding, complete rut fest, and then the wolves started howling. And I was just like, this is, like, A, I thought at any second, I thought for sure that rut was over, like rut fest was mm-hmm. over, you know, but middle of a rut fest, to the point of like drawing in self-defense and wolves are howling all around and it's snowing. And you're like, this is, this, my life is good. Like if I die in this situation, like I'm that good was with the, that. one of the coolest experiences you've ever had <laughs> right. in your entire life. Right. And people bitch right. and moan about wolves. So yeah. 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 It's, you know, again, I would go back to look at the metrics. How many Boone and Crockett Pope and Young entries have there been in the last 10 years? And what I think is that, you know, like anything. How many of those come out of grizzly country that... I would I would love to specifically know the the stats of bulls that are Pope and Young coming out of grizzly country mm-hmm. versus non grizzly country too, yeah. because I think uh, I guess we can say it because it's a Patreon podcast, but it's like I feel like the best place to hunt is grizzly country because all these non residents aren't going to do it. You know, yeah, they're going totally. like, to go somewhere else. Totally, <laughs> and you know it, it takes a different uh, temperament to hunt grizzly country. That's right. what it comes down to, right. and yeah, you spend more time hiking a food bag 200 yards away from your camp and you don't eat in camp and all these other things, right? You're limiting, you're reducing your potential of having to run in with a bear. Um, and it's part of the experience. Do you hunt solo? Yeah. How do you deal with like processing <laughs> quickly? Um, when I had the run in with the bear and I shot the wrong bull, I broke that bull down and I'm not joking. 55 minutes. Dude, that's insane. Solo. I was breathing harder than, and then like, you know, if, if I did 200 wind sprints in a row, yeah. I was breathing harder than, than that in that moment. Cause I was so freaked out about a bear coming back Yeah, <clears throat> and I knew I just had to get the meat away from the gut pile. A bear's, you know, a bear wants to eat the gut pile. It doesn't really want to care about the meat that much. Too. It's too lean for him. Right. So. Um, yeah, so quickly, uh, I, I do it quickly fast, <laughs> with both hands. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, um, it just comes down to like, how do you actually get the meat to a safe space? Right. Solo mm-hmm. in bear country that that's where the challenge comes. Right. And, 
Um, <laughs> I've climbed a lot of trees and hung a lot of quarters. And that's sketchier than running into a bear. Right. Like going right. 15 feet up in a tree with an 80 pound quarter and trying to tie it to a branch and wondering if the branch is going to break. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so now I actually implement a, you take these little, um, little pulleys. They like, they weigh an ounce each. You take 20 yards of cord, mm-hmm. you know, three mil cord, you run it through the pulleys and you can hoist these quarters up and tie them off. And then drop it down and hoist the next one up and tie it off. Interesting. So you got to take a lot of cord. Yeah, but you it's, it's like cord. three mil, right? It's yeah. a 150 pound test. Yeah. Um, so it's it's pretty small. That's smart. But that's, you got to find a tree too. And a lot of this that's country hard part. Yeah. is like, I mean. It's bad enough trying to find one for the food bag, let alone four quarters. Yeah. Hunting 10.5 to 11.5 for rutting elk and trying to find something that can support a quarter is like it's comical yeah yeah so actually i like i find that burying quarters so i can find a snowbank that's one of my precursors to hunting really deep solo is find a snowbank mm. if i can find a snowbank even if it's if it's out of the direction of where i need to pack that pack the game i'll run it over there and bury it in the snowbank even in bear country you'll yeah. do that yep do you don't feel like they're gonna get it right I've never had a bear dig into a quarter on a snowbank. Yeah. I mean, um, would you just leave it like stacked on on brush if it was in the open? You could see it. Cause I've done that. Like, you know, like a log jam or something. I'm like, I'm going to throw it up on this log jam and at least I can see it from a ways off. I don't know if that's legal or not, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's legal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like you said, like you get done at midnight and you're like, I'm not hanging a, there is no tree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a burn. Like no, I mean, this is the funnest <laughs> part, right? Yeah, so you're in a burn. You have no way of doing it. And the worst part is you don't want to pack it out by yourself. But you have to find someone who's not going to talk about where you're at. Especially <laughs> well, when, you, myself. when you kill one of these monster bulls, right? So we all, like, you have an inreach. And uh, my girlfriend, Bridget, is, like, she's... She once turned to me, she forgot insoles in her boots, and she was packing out a 350 bowl with me, and it was <laughs> 2 a.m. And, you know, I, I felt really bad for her. Uh, she was packing, like, 80 pounds. She weighs 135 pounds. <laughs> She's, like, killing it. She used to be a professional skier and all this other crap, but um, very strong woman, very strong will. So she's the perfect packing partner. <laughs> Yeah. And, she, and you know she's not going to give up your Until secrets. Until this moment happens where I'm like, I don't know how she's doing this without insoles in her mountaineering boots. <laughs> and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. We've already made like four trips of shuttling meat. And I'm like, you know, feeling bad for us. I'm like, hey, you know, darling, it's, um, man, it's tough out here, huh? And she goes, think about Tibetan refugees walking barefoot over the Himalayas. <laughs> so she just one-upped you? And I was like... <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> remind me to never have pity for you again. <laughs> but um, no, when you you know you realize that humans have a threshold far past what we think we do for pain and yeah. for being able to achieve things. And I guess that's what I would say to anyone who's listening is just challenge yourself to find that threshold. Dude, and you know, I, I've talked about this before. I think that's I think you do this game long enough and you get in those situations and, and you push your threshold and you become meant mentally tougher and and then each time it gets a little bit easier because you're like yeah you know you've been there done that yeah. i mean it's not easier i think you can endure longer once you've been through a few of these yeah you know and it's like then you're like yeah it's just it is what it is it's yeah. 
it's going to be a long night, you know, like it just is what it is. Yeah. And like, I feel like that mental toughness. So that for all the people coming into this game, sport, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. it's like work on your mental toughness, do things that are harder. Like yeah. when I trail run, I've said this before, but like I'll run through the river because like my feet are going to be wet all September. Might as well start getting them hard now. Yeah. (laughs) Get used to discomfort. I'd rather, I'd yeah, you know, I'd rather have uh, the easy day be September than than it be like 10 times harder in September. Like this is the point. I do miss the days where it was like the first couple times you did like a half of an elk pack out where you like deboned two quarters and threw them in between the pack and the frame and packed it out and you're like yeah i'm doing it (laughs) and it was like this huge challenge that you were overcoming and you did it like the second year and maybe the third year and then the fourth year you're like oh god (laughs) i don't want to do this anymore (laughs) right right i'll drop it to a single quarter pack out instead of doing two at a time i don't i'm not a hero anymore (laughs) yeah but the excitement of doing the first time i think that's the fun part a lot of people are you know skipping over now because there is a lot of information that says no, 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 take lighter loads. No, push your threshold. Right. Don't hurt yourself. But see what yeah, kind of Yeah, but the difference is, is like we didn't can... have fancy Mystery Rancher Kafaru packs. We had like Bimart metal aluminum frame. Totally. And your first one you went out with like, you know, something small on uh, my Black Creek fanny pack totally. bag. Totally. <laughs> and then you get the frame pack and then you hike out on the frame pack for all night. We used to pack out quarters. <clears throat> no joke. I in, in college, I blew out my knee. And <laughs> the doctor authorized me to walk without crutches, like two days after season had opened. So I was like, I'm going. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank God we didn't kill anything during archery, but went into rifle season and harvestable during rifle season. And, uh, you know, just throwing a quarter over your shoulder yeah. and packing it out two miles. Yeah. That's what we used to do. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, like, oh, this eva foam or this <laughs> do you even need this no you, yeah. you don't um you need to realize the value of it i think and then and then once you're successful enough to validate yeah. buying something like that and do it but yeah. the things you need right a good the pair of need boots. and want are yeah get a good pair of boots you can spend times spend spend a lot of time in the woods get a great pair of binoculars so you can watch and learn from a distance without disturbing them yeah. And I think if you got those tools... Spotter guess, or no spotter? Oh. Uh, I've been trying to find a way to get in way without, you know, yeah. scouting without a spotter. So I even went back to finding retro Swarovskis that have the 2X multiplier. Yeah. Like, I mean, I had to go... I found these in the UK. They're like 15, 20 years old. Uh, <laughs> I paid pretty much full price for them. Really? Uh, what a current pair of binoculars Swarovski ELs would cost. <laughs> And just to be able to have the option to put the doublers on there so I could get rid of the spotting scope yeah. and go from an eight and a half power to a 17 power. Yeah. And, uh, and I still pack a spotting scope. <laughs> so yeah, spotting scope, film I really, them. I think filming is the best thing. Uh, phone scopes, you can go back and evaluate the film and you can watch that a thousand times at home. You can only watch it once in the field. Right. So I, um, I think it lowers your your threshold for excitement like it not yeah. not excitement it's in the wrong term but like it, it just makes you more confident it's like i've been here before you know when you've seen you like look at that bowl of a lot you're analyzing yeah instead it of becomes reacting. yeah it becomes very analytical yep. and not emotional yeah you know because like the old days when you like see a buck and then like two weeks later you'd see him again you're like that's the book that's the book and you get all worked up right yeah and now is it 
you get to calm down a little bit. I think, yeah, it's tough. And then the bigger the animal gets, the more you think, wow, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then you have to work backwards. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the shot has to take place. The arrow has to hit perfectly. The yeah. ball has to not jump. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get really unlucky and sometimes you get really, really, really lucky. What's harder? And because this is Wabati Wednesday, we'll use elk and not deer. But what's yeah. harder, finding a 400-inch bull or killing a 400-inch bull? I'll never killed a four-inch bull. <laughs> can we, only, we can lower that to whatever number you want, but I, hypothetically, you I've get my point. I've only found, and just to put the record straight, I've only found two bulls that go over 400 ever. So um, they're rare, right? Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the woods. I think um, I think someone can luck into killing a four-inch bull. I think if, and, you know, finding them and hunting them, is significantly more difficult than locking it into a bowl. Yeah. Um, so doing it twice is <laughs> yeah, yeah. virtually impossible versus doing it once. I, I think so. I think, again, like there's a lot of people who can have, you know, right place, right time. And there's enough people out in the woods that you stumble on, like northern right. Montana. A guy killed a 417-inch bowl. Yeah. Like fourth year hunting, how how the hell did that happen? Right. Uh, there's guys have been hunting for forty years and are hardcore and haven't come close to killing a bull that big. So, um, I think you know finding the bull is the most rewarding. Is how I'll break it down. Yeah. Um, killing the bull is that it's exhilarating, right? When you find a huge bull and you hunt it and you hunt it and hunt it mm -hmm. but if you walk away and you didn't kill that bull it doesn't hurt as bad as not being able to find a bull of that caliber right right I agree with that so for the longest time i shot five by fives five by sevens you know <laughs> seven by sevens with broken main beams i had a five by five curse that i could not get over <laughs> 12 years running wow five by fives. and i was like i'm not killing anything unless it's six point <laughs> it'd be six on one side and five on the other right it'd fall over when i shot it'd fall over break it down on five freaking rock and i'd be like you really? gotta be kidding me man uh and then you know i had a great co-worker that just stopped me and, and i was so frustrated um because i just could not get over this hump and it's the only thing i wanted to do you know from idaho you know on the six point bowl with your bow it's like oh my god he did it yeah he's a master <laughs> um <laughs> so I had a coworker, we are going for a hike uh, up the M after work and she just stopped me and she was like, you need to stop like fixating on it. It'll happen when it's gonna happen. The next year it happened. That's amazing. And I was like, you know, God, if I make it a big deal in my head, maybe it's a bigger deal than what it actually is and it's just gonna happen, right? right. Um, so there's this like try hard, but be relaxed and let things come to you. Right. Mentality. Yeah. Let go of the thing you want the most and it'll come to you. It's one of those things. Yeah. Um, that's true in business. People sure so hard for money. And, you know, sometimes if you let go of that, like, need, mm -hmm. like, it'll come to you. Especially in entrepreneurship when you're trying to create something or build something. It's it's very, it's very much, it's easy to get wrapped up in, like, I need to make this money. Mm -hmm. First, like, I need to build a great thing. And if you focus on building the great thing, then essentially the money will come to you. Yeah. I think the same could be true for elk hunting. You know, it's like if you want a six point, fundamentally do things correctly and that'll come to you, you know? Yeah. Go through the fundamentals. Yeah. <laughs> Build the right thing. Be present, be happy with what you can do and hold out as long as you can to find that right. six point, whatever. Right. 
And if it doesn't happen, who cares? Yeah. Right? Because right. you're at that place in time where you're supposed to be. Right. And there's some people, this is the frust- most frustrating part you're going to run into, is there's some people who you swear to God do not deserve it. <laughs> so true. And they kill a big bull every single year from the first year they started hunting every single year. And you go, I try harder than everyone. Yeah. And I fail more than everyone. Dude, it used to eat me up. It used to yeah. eat me up. I'd look at like, um, this is even before social media, you know, like I remember, yeah, pre-social media when you went to like sportsmen's and checked the, the kill board, you know, yeah. and be like, God, that guy killed another good one, you know, and it's like, you thought you were outworking everybody, but, or someone would kill a giant. And this happened, used to happen quite a bit and still does. People kill a giant, you know, one off mm-hmm. luck, you know, yeah. and it's like, I now look at people who consistently kill good bulls. Far more than the guy that killed the 400. Yeah. You know, like, usually the 400's a fluke deal. I like, think most people you talk to also that consistently kill good bulls now mm-hmm. went through the struggle phase. There's, right. a, there's a huge dichotomy between, um, you know, being attracted to pursuing something because it's so difficult. Right. If it came to you easy, if I was 12 years old and I killed a four inch bull, right. I'd stop hunting. Right. So I don't, like, I don't agree yeah. with kids going out and going on the elk refuge and killing these giant elk. Yeah. We think we're engaging them and retaining them, but really we're just giving them an experience and saying bye. Um, The people who are most addicted to this sport, who love being outside, are the ones that had the most difficult time, right? Who struggled the most. And and I respect that. You know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of my mentors, my dad was a big hunter, but he struggled big time. Um, and he never gave me anything easy. So, but the, a lot of my mentors who were really great hunters, like their kids didn't hunt. And I always thought, found that fascinating. And I wonder if it's, you know, like you said, like there's too much early success. It doesn't breed the hunger that the struggle fest does. You know what I mean? Totally. Like when we were like just walking around, just not doing very well. I was like, God, I gotta, I gotta beat this thing. Totally. And there's, I mean, there's something to be said because there's people who do things and it sucks and they quit, you know, like, yeah. this is dumb. <laughs> so I, you know, I, people are very different. So yeah. Running's a great example of that. Right. I ran one time. It sucked. I quit. Anyone who's continued to run and on the fifth day and on the sixth day, you went, wow, this is getting easier. I think I'll keep doing this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, there's a tipping point, but, uh, but what's fun is that, you know, when, when people say you can't, it's mm. human nature for us to say, no, 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 you're wrong. I can do that. I'm going to do that. I think, yeah, one of the biggest motivators for me was always like the percent. Like I would look at um, success rates mm-hmm. and be like, if 15%, I was like, oh, I can beat that. Like I, I'm going to be successful. You know, like that was like in the early days, I just wanted to be more than 10%. You know? <laughs> totally. I was just like, like I'm going to be better than that percentage. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think that's a driving factor, right? You're like, okay, I just want to be successful. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I just want to kill a six point. That's what like, got me into archery to begin with. I was a rifle hunter and I had a cow walk by me and brush against me. Oh, wow. And I went and I was sitting still, you know, like old Idaho rifle hunters do in thick country. You just yeah. set up and you wait for them to walk by. <laughs> And maybe someone's pushing animals or trying to walk a loop or something like that. And this cow walked by and she brushed me and went, that was the coolest experience I've ever had. But I want to be able to have success. So how can I harvest that cow? I can get close to cows. I can't find the bulls. I went to archery. I killed a couple of cows. I said, yes, success. Now let's see if I can go hunt the bulls. Wow, this is a lot easier now. (laughs) Right? Like I understand them a little bit more. Yeah. And, um, yeah, what a, what a fun... How many years has it been? How many years have you been hunting? 
to put this in perspective, I shot my first elk first when I was twelve. When you were twelve, yeah. I shot my first deer when I was, I think, when I was twelve as well, eleven or twelve. And I was one of those kids that woke up at four a.m. and yeah. ran down the, the stairs when we didn't have anything doing yeah. on the weekend uh, and watched ESPN outdoors until <laughs> until like my parents yeah. were like, "Wow, there's something wrong with that kid." Yeah, same here. Um, so maybe it's like but, maybe you're born into it a little bit. I think one of it, well, my dad was a huge elk hunter. Um, not huge. Ironically, my dad never shot a branch antler bull. I think it was like 16 or 19 spikes. Yeah. In those days, though, it was like you shoot the first elk that comes by because, like, it's meat. Um, but I always found that fascinating that he never killed a, a big bull. But long story short, uh, when I was nine, fourth grade was the first year you got to go to elk camp. Like, it was like the year you got to go. Yeah. And I went and opening morning, like we go and I like spotted the elk before he did. Like I was just low and they were bedded under this timber. And I was like, I look over and I'm like, oh, elk like, right there. And, you know, my dad had to like duck down because I don't know. Under the branches. Yeah, under the branches. <laughs> and he just sits me down. I don't know if I've told this or not, but like he sits me down. And I, don't, I don't remember exactly what happened. And we had spike tags, but essentially all the elk go running right by me. And for whatever reason, my dad was like over here. No, to my right and out a little bit. So they all go running by me, and this big branch bull stops, like, right next to me. It was like, and all the rest of the elk go running out. It was a pretty small opening, a lot of blowdown. And he shoots the spike, boom. And I'm just like, Dad, the big one was like, I mean, it was <laughs> 10 yards from me. It was, like, the coolest thing that ever happened. So I was, like, destined to be hooked for life, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was at, yeah, nine years old or whatever it was. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All I can think of my first experience was going to pack out my dad's spike elk that he shot up by Bogus Basin outside of Boise, Idaho. And I was, he pulled me out of, out of uh, daycare and it was like a quarter mile off the road on this little single track motorcycle yeah. trail. And he was running the Honda 110 to run cores back and forth. And I got cold and I went back was that, you know, at that age a quarter mile was like 10, <laughs> yeah. right? So I got back to the truck and I was complaining to my dad um, when he was out by the elk and I was like, I'm cold. And he's like, just walk back to the truck. So I'm, yeah, I'm like five years old waddling back to the truck and I get back to the truck and my fingers are too weak to push the plunger in on the 76 Chevy to open the door. And I was like locked out. So I just fell down yeah. and started bawling and crying. <laughs> and then I realized that bawling and crying wasn't doing anything. So I just sat there. And, my dad, and it was like one of those like you know, little kid fits. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my first, that was my first hunting memory. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That same elk I tried to, my dad was like, oh, you got to pack the head back, you know, and I, it's in blowdown. And when you're, you know, I was a pretty small kid, yeah. but when you're nine, you know, blowdown's like climbing over walls every yeah. time. <laughs> Not exactly that stuff. So like heating this spike head up over every single lock, <laughs> you know. I made it like 20 yards and it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's, you know, looking back at the origins of hunting for both of us, it's such a, like an extreme, like revelation yeah. to be where we are now. Right. To, to see where we've come from. Right. And you're going to lose so many of those cool memories because you just can't keep track of all of right. them. Right. Right. They already blur together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you just got to, you know, you got to have fun and be present. I think is what it comes down to. So true, man. Yep. Well, thank you so much. Um, any ask of our audience or no? Yes, no, I, maybe. Ask them to do something. Go do 10 push-ups. Stop being such a lazy ass. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, everyone's got their own different perspective on this, but, I mean, 
support wildlands, you know, habitat is why the animals are there. Um, yeah. You know, support, you know, wildlife crossings because if you kill them with a car, you can't chase them with a bow. <laughs> right. That should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of things ecologically that we can do as hunters that isn't just like, I'm a hunter, I'm a conservationist. Just, you know, think outside the box. I like it, man. Totally. Dude, thank you so much. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Good talk, man. Cool. Alrighty, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Elk Hunt Podcast. If you love elk hunting content, tips and tactics, all that jazz, then go leave this podcast a review wherever you listen to podcasts at. Much appreciated. And if you're interested, go check out our Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a great resource, and it's going to make you a better hunter. I guarantee that, or we'll refund your money. Uh, If you don't get anything out of it, if you don't get $30 out of it, then we'll definitely refund your money. So go check it out. Link in the show notes.